Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. At first blush, Matthew's account of Jesus sending out the twelve raises more questions than it answers. For one thing, Matthew tells us nothing about the experiences of the twelve, but only about Jesus' instruction to the twelve. And Jesus' instructions themselves are full of seeming contradictions. He begins with the idyllic images of grain in the fields and sheep in the meadows, but before you know it, he's talking about warfare saying that he has come to bring a sword and to divide families, and that the disciples will be hated by all for his namesake. All of these perplexities vanish if we see this passage the way a first-century Jew would have. Matthew has been presenting Jesus as a new Moses. One of the things Moses did was send twelve spies into the land, and that is the way a first-century Jew would have viewed Jesus' actions in our text. In fact, The phrase, sheep without a shepherd, which Jesus uses to describe the people in Matthew 9.36, is taken straight from Numbers 27.15. A new Moses and twelve new spies means a new Canaan and a new conquest, which is exactly where Matthew will leave us at the end of his gospel, with a resurrected Jesus commissioning his disciples to go into all the world and to make all the nations his disciples and promising them that just as God had been with Israel at Jericho and following, so he would be with the disciples always, even to the end of the age. But we have to remember that conquest wasn't the first thing that resulted from Moses sending out the twelve spies. The first thing that resulted was division within Israel herself, because the faith that was strong enough to follow Moses out of Egypt was, with many of the people, not strong enough to follow Joshua into a land occupied by seven nations bigger and stronger than Israel. God had to raise up a new Israel from within Israel before Israel was ready to conquer Canaan. And as Jesus well knew, history was repeating itself in the first century. The twelve spies in the Old Testament were chosen based on blood, one from each tribe. Jesus' twelve new spies are chosen based on faith, and the new people of God he is forming is a people based on faith, faith in Jesus the Messiah, the new and greater Moses, and the Lord of the world. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. We come this morning in our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew to the point where Jesus commissions and sends out the twelve apostles, to preach the gospel. And so let's turn in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35, and we'll read in chapter 10 down to verse 42. Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 42. This is the very word of God to God's people in all generations. So let's give careful heed. Then when Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. 
But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before the governors and kings for my name's sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. 
but the very heads, hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me, follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water, of cold water, in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. God and Father, we pray now by the Holy Spirit that you would give us understanding to your word, that you would bring it to us with power that we may be built up and encouraged, that we might live and be and witness to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice about this passage is how it is a passage that is full of stark contrasts and apparent contradictions. It begins with this idyllic scene and vision of a harvest, of a field standing full of grain. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. The only problem is that the laborers are few. But then toward the end, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus says here that his purpose is to provide a shepherd for the sheep so that they're not scattered and disheartened. His purpose is to provide shepherds to comfort them, to guide them, to bring them peace. And yet the result will be division and a sword and even family members turning against one another, delivering one another up. Now, nothing is more idyllic than the imagery of fields ripe with grain and of sheep on the hills. And that's the imagery that Jesus evokes here. And yet, as soon as we see that, we have napalm in the air and gun smoke drifting across the fields and we have warfare and tooth and claw. Now, all these contrasts and contradictions fall into place. They all make sense if we view these events and hear Jesus' words the way any first century Jew would have. Now, what would have sprung to their mind is Israel on the banks of the Jordan, ready to cross into Canaan to invade the land, to take conquest of the land, and Moses commissioning Joshua and the twelve spies. In fact, the phrase, sheep without a shepherd, comes from Numbers chapter 27, where God has told Moses that he is going to die and he's not going to be there to lead the people into the land. And then Moses says, 
Let the Lord set a man over the congregation who may lead them out and bring them in. And that's the language of warfare, by the way. Who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And God says to Moses, take Joshua and inaugurate him in their sight and give him of your authority that all the congregation may be obedient. And so we see Jesus, whom Matthew has been presenting to us for a number of chapters now as a new Moses, we see Jesus doing this very thing with the twelve disciples who will become the twelve apostles. Now the other thing that happened before Israel invaded the land was sending out spies to spy out the land. This was done both times Israel came to the land. It was done the first time, twelve spies sent out. Spies were sent out again the second time Israel came to the land. And so Jesus now, and Matthew in his account of Jesus, is pulling all of these elements together, which pertain to Israel and the conquest of the land. Now, one of the things that Moses keeps telling Joshua and the spies and the congregation of Israel before they enter the land is, do not fear. And you notice that is something that Jesus says repeatedly here in our text. Now, if there is a new Moses and there's 12 new spies, that means there is a new conquest about to occur, and that means that there is a new Canaan to be conquered. The new conquest and the new Canaan will be stated expressly by Jesus in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's very similar to the words that Moses gives to Joshua and the people. It's very similar to the words that Joshua himself will give to the people before they go into the land. So we see that this new Canaan that Jesus is setting before his disciples is not a tiny region in the Middle East. It is rather the entire earth. And this new Canaan is not occupied by seven nations bigger and stronger than God's people. It is rather occupied by 70 nations bigger and stronger than God's people. Now, this conquest is going to take place in stages, even as the old conquest did. And that's what Jesus is getting at and what he will mention expressly in Acts chapter 1, just before he ascends up into heaven to the right hand of the Father. He says this, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And of course, in this passage, Jesus is conferring power on the twelve. And he tells the disciples, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there are stages to this conquest. And we see the beginning of those stages here in our text where Jesus tells the twelve, to go only to the lost sheep of Israel. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't even go to the Samaritans. You go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And in fact, at this particular point, the 12 disciples are going to go only to the cities and towns in the region of Galilee. They're not even going to be covering all Judea at this point. Now, in the Old Testament, the purpose of sending out the 12 spies was to prepare for the later conquest of the land. And we can see here 
that the purpose of Jesus sending out the twelve apostles is in large part to prepare them for the later mission to the land as recorded in the book of Acts. This is a legitimate mission of itself, but it's also really a training exercise to prepare them. And so you'll notice that whereas Jesus begins uh, in the first part of this text with specific instructions applicable to this particular mission to the cities of Galilee, he shifts partway through at chapter 10, verse 16, to instructions that are not applicable to this particular mission, but which will be applicable to the mission that's recorded in the book of Acts. For example, Jesus starts talking about being dragged before kings and governors, which is not something that happens at this point. It is something, however, that happens in the book of Acts. Now, in the Old Testament, the 12 spies were sent to see what they could expect from the inhabitants of the land, as well as to see what kind of fruit the land offered. That's what Moses told the spies. He says, go and check out the inhabitants of the land. Are there a lot of them? Are there few? Are they great? Are they small? And also look at the fruit of the land. What kind of fruit? And even so, this mission trip for the 12 disciples will give them an idea of what they can expect from the inhabitants as well as what kind of fruit they can expect. Now, the interesting thing is in both the Old Testament and now with Jesus, these things are stated, but then the spies are told, go and see. Moses told the spies, he told all the people ahead of time, he told them what the inhabitants of the land were like. He said, seven nations greater and stronger than you. That's what they're like. That's what you're going to find. You're going to find resistance. You're going to find opposition. They took a poll, Gallup did, and they found that nine out of ten Canaanites were not in favor of delivering up their land to Israel. And so that, but he still says, you go see. He also told them that this was a land flowing with milk and honey. that is well watered, it's rich, it's vineyards that you didn't plant, and fields that are already sown. And that's exactly what they're going to find. He tells them that, but then he says, go and see. Go see it for yourself. And so here we have Jesus doing the same thing. He tells them, what are you going to face when you go preach the gospel? You're going to face opposition. You're going to face resistance. You're going to face persecution and so forth. And he also tells them about the fruit of the land. He says the fields are white with harvest. There is much harvest out there. And so we see two things that we don't expect to go together. If we hear Jesus saying the fields are white with harvest, we just feel like there's no weeds out there. It's just all this beautiful grain out there. All we have to do is just go out and pluck it. But to Jesus, having the fields white with harvest is not at all inconsistent with having opposition, resistance, persecution, and suffering. Warfare, in other words. It all goes uh, together. So we see that as in the conquest of the land in the Old Testament, it's only the power of Christ, it's only the power of God, it's only the power that Christ gives His disciples that will enable the new Israel, founded on these 12 disciples, to overcome the opposition and reap the fruit of the land. Now, we know that The first time Israel came to the land, ten of the spies abandoned. They turned back. They said, we can't take the land. Only two remained faithful. One of the things we're going to see is as things start getting heated up, 
are these 12 spies going to be faithful? Well, 10 abandon the faith in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Only one will abandon here in the New Testament. And we're also going to have to see uh, what are the people of God going to do? What are the disciples going to do when they get in the midst of this warfare? And we know that the first time uh, Moses sent the 12, the 12 spies in, uh, there was one spy taken from each one of the 12 tribes. So a leader was taken from each one of the 12 tribes, and that made the 12 spies. So this is based on blood. But we know that the second time they came to the land, it's not based on blood, it's based on faith. Because it's based on Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, their faith. Okay, and that becomes the basis. And we see running throughout the Old Testament, if you pay careful attention, you can see that this is never really about blood. It's about the blood of Christ, but it's not about bloodlines, human bloodlines. It's about faith lines. And it's always the faith who end up forming the people of God. And so now Jesus is forming up a new Israel around these two 12 new spies. Now one of them will be abandoned and he will be replaced. But you notice that the 12 uh, uh, disciples, the 12 apostles, they're not taken one from each tribe. That's not the basis of them being chosen. The basis of them being chosen is Jesus chose them. Jesus chose them. Jesus said, follow me. That's discipleship. Follow me. And faith. That's the other basis. They're responding to Jesus in faith, and that will be the basis of the new Israel, in the new covenant people, when God puts his law into the hearts of his people and writes it on their minds. This will be the basis of God's new Israel. So Jesus says, follow me, that's discipleship. And then Jesus says, you go, that's apostleship. He's giving them authority and saying, now you go. Our passage starts out with Jesus going through the towns and preaching. And then he sends the 12 to do exactly what he's been doing. He has power to heal. He has power to cast out demons. He has power to preach the kingdom of God with authority. And he confers that power on the twelve and sends them out. Now, there is a lot here in this passage. And we can't take it all in in a single sermon. But the text hangs together. And that's why I read the whole thing to you this morning. It all hangs together as a whole. The themes of this passage run throughout the passage from front to back and from side to side. So we can't just go halfway through and cut it off and consider that and then neatly consider the last part because it all hangs together. It does violent to the message if we cut it in half. So I want to consider it holistically. I want to consider it as a whole, but I want to divide up our consideration into two messages so that we can spend some time and really look at uh, some of the insights and applications that we can draw from this. So, with that, let's begin to consider what are the insights and applications that we can draw from this passage. Well, first of all, missions, and when I say missions, I'm not just talking about sending a missionary to some foreign land. When I say missions, that's just a shorthand way for me to say carrying the gospel to the world. And by that, I mean any and all forms of bearing witness for Christ. 
That would mean sharing the gospel personally to somebody else. It would mean maybe you don't get to share the whole gospel. Maybe you just get to say a certain word that's consistent with God's message to a coworker or to a friend or somebody you meet. It can just be uh, even living out uh, the virtuous, faithful, godly Christian life in the workplace. I'm talking about anything and everything that has to do with bearing witness for Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about missions. Missions, bearing witness for Christ, is spiritual warfare. That's something we need to get. Now, when we're sharing the gospel, of course, we're trying to be a good example. We want to be kind. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, when you're sharing the gospel, even when you're having to deal with opponents, you want to be humble, you want to be gentle, we want to be winsome. So when we think about sharing the gospel, we think about being nice. We want to be nice, and we should. But we have to understand that being nice in the right way is a sneaky form of warfare. That's exactly what it is. Sharing the gospel, bearing witness for Christ, is spiritual warfare. And so Jesus says in our text, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now this is the language of warfare. And the Apostle Paul confirms what Jesus implies here. Paul says in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are fighting against principalities against powers. We're fighting against, we're contending with, we're running up against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You may think you're just dealing with some person, some confused co-worker, some person who needs Christ in their life, who may be coming up with lots of excuses and raising skeptical arguments and so forth. You think you're just dealing with a person. We have to realize you're not just dealing with a person who needs Jesus. You are dealing with spiritual powers of darkness. Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, when you're dealing with opponents, people who have got hate in their eyes and their lips are curling when they're talking to you and they can't stand the message you're bringing and they can't stand you, he says, you have to stay, you have to stay meek, you have to stay humble uh, because you have to understand that the whole issue here is whether God is going to grant them repentance. When you preach the gospel to them and you call them to respond to Christ, you're calling them to do something that they in themselves don't have the power to do because of their own sin, because of their own antipathy, because of the poison that's flowing in them spiritually. They don't have the power to do it. He says, Timothy, stay humble, stay gentle, so that God may grant, if he wants to, repentance that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil because they have been held captive by him to do their will. Now, we talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago. It's not saying that people are robots. It's not saying that people uh, don't have free will. What it is saying is that our free wills are fallen. Our free wills are fallen. And so that's the problem. Our free will, that's the problem. 
As Jesus told those who were rejecting him, he said, You will not come to me that you may have life. You will not come to me that you may have life. What's the problem? Their free will. That's the problem. Because free will is not like tossing a coin. The will does what it's told to do. And what the choices we make is governed by our nature. It's, go it's governed by our fallenness unless God does something about it. So we're told in the Gospels that Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Well, Satan, but Judas also had it in his heart. So who decided to betray Jesus? Judas did, and so did Satan. And what this means is that fallen sinners who have an antipathy toward God that flows within them. Fallen sinners are very, very easy for Satan to manipulate. Very, very easy for Satan to control. Okay? And so they end up doing their own will. They make their own free choices for their own good and sufficient reasons. But you have to remember that in the Bible, freedom doesn't mean what the person on the street thinks it means. If you say freedom to somebody on the street, particularly in America, they think about freedom meaning the right to do what I want, the, the, the availability of choices, that nobody's going to come between me and my choices. Nobody's going to fetter my will. I have uh, free choices. In the Bible, freedom means power. It doesn't mean the availability of choice. It means the ability of choice. It doesn't mean the availability to choose what you want. It means the power to choose what you should. And that's why if somebody says, well, does man have free will? The answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he's a free agent. He, does, he makes his own decisions for his own reasons. Everybody does. But man does not have of himself the power to choose what he should. If somebody sat on a table in front of you, on one end of the table, the food that you love best, okay, great wine, great steak, chocolate obviously will be involved, um, these kind of things, all at one end of the table. And they sit at the other end of the table, all the stuff that you can't stand, that, that's really good for you. I mean, maybe it's Brussels sprouts. Maybe it's stuff like that. It's really good for you, okay? It's all at the end of the table, and you're told, freely choose. Every day, every meal, you're going to this end of the table, the stuff you like, you're never going to the other end of the table. You have the availability of choice. You don't have the ability of choice. You don't have the power to choose that which you hate. And that's exactly the problem with man's free will. So Christ says, you will not come to me. This is the same passage where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And then he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now we often mistake that and we get this picture of the Father standing in front of Jesus kicking people away. He doesn't let people come. That's not the problem at all. The reason why no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him is because no one will come unless the Father works, unless the Spirit works to change them, to change their heart, so that now they want to come to Christ. And so missions, bearing witness for Jesus is a matter of spiritual warfare. 
And this is why the Great Commission is often pictured in the Bible as all-out warfare. For example, Revelation chapter 19, we have Christ pictured as riding out on a white horse, riding out with his people following him to conquer the nations. Now, this passage is full of graphic, bloody imagery. It says that the blood flows up to the horse's bridles. It's a very bloody, graphic passage. And for that reason, it's often misunderstood to be referring to an actual physical war in which Jesus militarily defeats, slaughters really, uh, the rebellious nations who are opposing him. And so we take that and then we get this image of the kingdom of God being a military regime that's imposed at the point of a gun. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. If we read Revelations 19 carefully, we see that it's not referring to actual military warfare at all, but to spiritual warfare. For it says that Jesus' enemies are killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth. There's no sword in Jesus' hand. In the Old Testament, the sword was in Joshua's hand, and it was in the hand of the angel of the Lord who appeared to Joshua. Now in the New Testament, the sword is that which is proceeding from Jesus' mouth, which of course is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Now, we might ask, and we really should ask, why would the Great Commission be pictured as a slaughter? Why would taking the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus to the nations be pictured as a bloodbath? Well, because in the gospel, we are calling people to die. We're calling them to die in order that they might live. We're calling them to die in Christ's death in order to live in Christ's life. We're calling them to die to their sinful self, to willingly lose and give up their sinful, selfish life in order to find life, the only true life in Jesus Christ. So the story of the world is that everyone dies. Everyone dies either in themselves, that is, standing on their own, standing before Jesus, the judge of all, in their own sin, with their own thoughts and intentions fully exposed, which means all of the excuses, all of the self-deception that we practice, all the lame excuses we give to other people and we give to ourselves, which may be plausible to people, they're all going to fall to the ground with a look from Jesus. Because we know it's lame, lame, lame. So the fundamental issue of life is not just do you want to live, but what kind of death do you want to die? Do you want to die the death that means death forever? Or do you want to die the death that means life forever. That's the difference between dying by yourself and dying in union with Christ and being raised with him. So missions, witnessing for Christ, carrying the gospel to the world is a matter of spiritual warfare. We see here in our text, to his own disciples, Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. This is a tough message, but it is the message of life and peace. Now, the other concept we have interspersed in our passage is that of harvest. 
And when we think of harvest, again, we think of idyllic fields of grain. But if you study harvest in the Old Testament, if you have a computer, a Bible program, uh, you can put in harvest and just look at all the passages where it pops up. If you study harvest in the Old Testament, you will think not of idyllic fields of grain. You will think of a threshing floor where wheat is separated from the chaff. That's what they think of the harvest. Harvest is associated with judgment, separating wheat from chaff, bringing the wheat into the barn and blowing the chaff away in the wind of judgment. Now, here's the significant thing. In the Old Testament, the temple, the temple that Solomon built, was built on the site of the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, which David brought from him, bought from him, and sacrificed there pursuant to God's instructions to stop the angel of death who was killing God's people because of David's sin of ordering a census. Okay, God commanded uh, his kings to not take census of the people because when kings take census, it's because they want to know how far they can stick their chest out when they're meeting with other kings. That's what they want to know. How many people do I have? How big is my army? That's what kings want to know. God knows that, and so he tells them that's not the issue. The issue is, are you with me? That's the only issue ever. It didn't matter with Gideon when he only had 300. The issue is God's with Gideon and his 300. And so uh, God tells kings, you don't take a census. David got proud at a certain point. He wants a census. His general tells him, why are you doing this? He says, just do it. So the general goes out. They begin taking a census. God comes to David and he says, you choose between three punishments. And one of them is having a plague come upon the people. And so um, the, another choice would be having the enemies of Israel uh, come on um, Israel and conquer Israel. And, and David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord because he knows God is far more merciful than man is. So the angel of death is proceeding through Israel and people are dying from the plague right and left. And then God's mercy, he does have mercy, and he tells the angel to stop and hold off for a minute. The angel stops, we're told, by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the angel of, of the Lord is standing there with the sword in his hand. God tells David, go buy this piece of land from Ornan, and you sacrifice to me on the threshing floor of Ornan. And so David does so, and then the angel and the sword of the Lord are lifted, and the plague goes away. Now, very significantly later, when God appears to Solomon, and he gives him the instruction for building the temple, he tells them to build it on the site of the threshing floor of Ornan. Now, what this means is, in a very picturesque way, is that the temple of God, and of course the temple of God in the New Testament is the people of God. It's the church of God. It's where the Spirit of God dwells. And Paul tells us that for each one of us and all of us together, we are the temple of God because the Spirit dwells in us. The temple of God is where death stops and life begins. 
And the New Testament tells us with the giving of the Spirit that therefore the church of Jesus Christ is where death and life meet. It's where wheat and chaff are separated. It's where God comes near and thus is necessarily a place where hearts are revealed and thus it is a place of judgment. So the preaching of the gospel and the worship of the one true God necessarily and inescapably involved these things. Jesus told Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And then he turns right around and tells him, here is the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. It's not the purpose of the church, it's not the purpose of the Christ to bring condemnation. But when light comes into darkness, it creates division and it creates a, a difference between wheat and chaff. And now you see why Jesus would combine harvest and warfare together without blinking an eye. Both of them involve ultimate issues of life and death. Both of them are messy. A battlefield is a messy place. And so is a threshing floor. And so is the church. The only clean battlefield, the only tidy threshing floor, are those that are abandoned, where nothing is happened. So when God calls us together in the church of Jesus Christ, He is calling with us, and he's calling for other people that we witness to. Matters of life and death are happening here. We need to see, finally, that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He says to his disciples, Pray that the Lord of the harvest may seem, see, send laborers into the harvest. But who is the one who sends the laborers in this passage? Jesus. So Jesus is identified as the Lord of the harvest. He is the Lord of the battle. It is His war and only He can win it. And this is something that we need to really get as modern Christians, particularly in America, because we're so used to success. We've been so blessed. We've been given so much success uh, that we just we think of it this way. We think of it as our birthright. We think that anything we touch is going to succeed. We need to understand that in this warfare, in this harvest of the Great Commission, we, we American Christians, with all of our success, all of our ideas, all of our ingenuity and so forth, all of our marketing skills, all of the things that we can bring to the table, which are considerable, are absolutely no match for what we're up against in this battle. We are no match for... Uh, Satan and lost humanity and all these things. But the Lord of the harvest is. Now, that's why he keeps telling them, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, because he knows when they get in the thick of this, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to realize they are no match for what they are facing. And that's why the Great Commission begins and ends with Jesus in the middle, he says, go make disciples of the nations and baptize them and teach them to do all I've commanded you. But that's not where he begins and that's not where he ends. He begins and ends with himself. He begins by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he ends by saying, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
That needs to be where we begin when it comes to missions and where we end when it comes to missions. It is about the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the battle. It is not ultimately about what we can do, thank God. It is about what Christ can do, the one who has all authority, the one who is with us always to the end of the age. It begins and ends with the Lord of the harvest. Now, this is another challenge for us as American uh, Christians in particular because we have a tendency to glamorize uh, missions. We tend to glamorize missions, glamorize evangelism, uh, glamorize uh, bearing witness for Christ and so forth. That's like glamorizing warfare. Anybody who has served in warfare can tell you it is not glamorous. And young men tend to do this on the front end. We're going to go and we're going to, we're going to fight and we're going to win and we're going to win glory and so forth. While warfare may be glorious, it is certainly not glamorous. And missions and bearing witness for Christ is the same way. It is warfare. It is a fight. It depends on the Lord of the harvest. And we need to make sure that we are trusting in Him. We also have a tendency as American Christians to expect quick and easy victories. This is another part of kind of glamorizing it. As Americans, particularly since World War II, we know we're the most powerful nation. We have the most powerful military. We have the most powerful economy. We have the most opportunities and so forth. And because we ended up with such resounding victories in World War II, we have a tendency to expect quick and easy victories. And so if we go into Vietnam, if we go to Iraq, if we go to Afghanistan, if we go to these places, and I'm not talking about whether or not we should be there. I'm just saying we are there. And I'm saying once we go, you know, first everything's rah-rah because we're dropping the bombs that nobody else has. We're shooting the missiles that we can send down a chimney. They're so precise. And we're doing all these things. And, you know, we're just kicking it. And uh, it's great. And then it protracts. The situation protracts. And then what happens in America? We get frustrated. We're tired of this. What's going on over there? We clearly gave them our American political economic software to load on their hard drives so they could be like us and everything would be fine. And then when it turns out our software won't run on their hard drive because they've got a different operating system, because they're the product of a different faith, we become very, very frustrated. We want quick and easy victories. We expect it. We think we deserve it. And as American Christians, we tend to bring that over into missions and evangelizing. We come up with ideas. Many times they may be good ideas, but we just expect that the whole world is going to fall over. This is not the way Jesus would have it. Consider the fact that Jesus, just a few chapters back, went to the land of the Gergesenes. You remember, he took the disciples across the sea, calmed the sea, takes them to the land of the Gergesenes. Two demon-possessed men come out who are so violent, nobody can even travel in that area. Jesus casts out the demons. And so he, he gets rid of this plague that, that that region is dealing with. Now, what's the response? Jesus himself is bringing the kingdom and the gospel to the Gergesenes. What's the response? The whole town turns out and asks Jesus to leave. Please leave. 
and Jesus leaves. It's like, Jesus, you're already here. You've already cast out the demons. Come on, let's bring it now. Bring them now. The Lord of the harvest would not have it so. At some point, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, is going to save the Gergesenes. But it wasn't then. Now, that kind of thing doesn't really make sense to us. We're not given any explanation. And we see this continue in the book of Acts. On Paul's second missionary journey, he wants to take the gospel into Asia. And he's right there. He's right there. He wants to take the gospel into Asia. The Holy Spirit says, no. Forbids him expressly to go into Asia. Then Paul wants to take the gospel into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says, no. Then the Holy Spirit gives Paul a dream and sends him across the water into Macedonia, what's now Greece. No explanation. We don't have any explanation. God's going to save Asia. He's going to save Bithynia. He sends Paul to Greece. We don't know why the Lord of the harvest knows what he is doing. He is doing this incrementally, step by step, like a mustard seed growing like Leaven working through a lump. This is the way that he would have it. And we have to understand that things happen all the time that don't make sense to us. That's not the way we would have it. Throughout church history, the Lord of the harvest again and again acts in a way that his people don't expect and can't explain. He makes it clear again and again that he, not us, is Lord of the harvest. And our job is not to question Him. Our job is to be faithful to Him. We put out the seed. We preach the gospel. We share the gospel with every chance we get. Uh, We can have plans. We can have programs. We can have strategies. We can have all these things. But Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Many times in church history, He does what He did with the Protestant Reformation. It is dark, dark, dark. Go back and study history in 1517. There was no light. It was dark. And then the Lord of the harvest, when we've run out of answers, the Lord of the harvest takes a German monk with an anxiety disorder and changes the world for the next half millennia. That makes it very clear. He's the Lord of the harvest, not us. And what we really want more than anything else when it comes to missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel is not, we don't want the kind of power that we can have. Not to say we shouldn't think and shouldn't have strategies and those kind of things. That's all good. But we don't want to know the power of our marketing and the power of our programs. What we really want is to know the power of the Lord of the harvest where he does stuff and we sit around and we look at one another and say, can you take credit for that? Because I can't. And everybody goes, glory. Glory to the Lord of the harvest. And I think we forget to begin and end where Jesus does. He says to start out, the first thing he tells these 12 to do is pray. Pray. That's the first thing he says to do before he says go. He says pray to the Lord of the harvest. And we need to begin with Jesus, who is the Lord of the harvest. The other thing we need to do is to give glory to the Lord of the harvest, who is the one who is sovereign over all these things. He's the one who is sovereign over all these things. I think a lot of times as American Christians, we would never explicitly say 
that we're going to take the glory for some, something. Um, it has to do with missions or evangelism or so forth or building a church or whatever. We'd never say that. We know that's false. That's false doctrine. We'd say, no, it's of the Lord. But I think implicitly a lot of times, just by our assumptions, we do not give sufficient glory to the Lord of the harvest. If Jesus pours out his spirit somewhere, which he does in different places, there will be a particular church and, and he'll pour out his spirit in a particular town or particular city and cause amazing things to happen and amazing fruit. Um, what we tend to do, what's the next thing that's going to happen? The book deal. The book deal is the next thing that's happening. There's going to be a book on all the techniques that were used and so forth. And what we tend to think is that if we simply take the techniques that were used in thus and such a place where God really worked, then the same exact thing is going to happen here. And it's going to look exactly the same way. Now, if we think that way, what are we really trusting in? It's the techniques. It's us. But, and we don't give sufficient credit to the fact that, you know, bottom line, beyond all the techniques, whatever the programs were and so forth, used in this city over here, wherever it is, beyond all that, you want to know what the explanation is for what happened over there? That we're, it's Jesus poured out his spirit. The Lord of the harvest poured out his spirit. And that's what we ought to see. That's what we ought to give glory for. And that's what we ought to pray for. So we need to begin and end where the Great Commission began and end, and that's with Jesus. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. In the midst, it's fine to have ideas, programs, thoughts, things we want to try, but we need to make no mistake about where we begin and where we end, and that is with Jesus, the only one with the power to accomplish his commission to the world, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.